Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Florida folk musician Frank Thomas has passed away. Frank Thomas, along with Gamble Rogers and Will McLean, was one of the great Florida troubadours. Some of the old-time country stuff that was really fascinating me, we didn't have electricity, but we had a battery-operated radio. We'll discuss the Jacksonville Times Union newspaper. It has a distinction today as being the longest running newspaper in print in Florida. And we'll talk about Florida rock musician Tom Petty. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Frank Thomas wrote and performed songs about the history, people, and places of Florida. Songs such as Old Cracker Cowman, The Flatwoods of Home, and Spanish Gold have earned him a loyal following. In 2013, Thomas was inducted into the Florida Artists Hall of Fame. For four decades, Frank Thomas was a fixture at the Florida Folk Festival in White Springs, which is where we spoke with him about his deep Florida roots. The Thomas side of the family came into Florida in 1820, and he married a girl who was born in St. Augustine in 1805, and her parents had was well established there, had been there about 20 years, so I'm thinking, you know, that had to be late 1780s or early 1790s. Anyway, uh, but I don't know what her maiden name was either. I, I, I really, if I could find that, I could uh, find out more, you know, about it. But they, they raised children, and uh, there's Thomases scattered all over the place. Members of the Thomas family experienced a lot of Florida history. Longevity seems to run in my family. My daddy was born in 1882. Now, he grew up in a whole different era and environment. Now, you think about that, and I was born in 43. And he was 61, I think, when I was born. And my mother was almost 50. Well, you know, his, his daddy, I think, died at a fairly early age. I think a one-eyed mule kicked him in the head, and that's what killed him. But then my great-granddaddy, who was, was singing about in that song about the uh, Flatwoods of Home, fought in the, in the Great War, Northern Aggression, and fought in the Seminole Indian Wars, was at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend and some of that stuff. And then he, uh, they, they go on back before him. Thomas grew up in Middleburg, Florida, in a musical family who played gospel music. 
his first performing experiences were in church. His early musical influences also included performers on radio broadcasts of the Grand Ole Opry, including Hank Williams, Lefty Frizzell, and Webb Pierce. Some of the old-time country stuff that was really fascinating me. We didn't have electricity, but we had a battery-operated radio. And my mama would listen to these uh, old soap opera things, you know, in the daytime. My daddy made her save that battery for Saturday night so he could listen to the Grand Ole Opry. And that's where I first started getting influenced. But they sang gospel, and uh, I grew up in that environment singing gospel music. After serving seven years in the Army in the 1960s, Thomas began touring with nationally known gospel, country, and bluegrass bands as a guitarist and singer. He played with groups including the Taylor Brothers, the Webb Family, and the Arkansas Travelers. Of course, I went off and, uh, you know, was uh, worked, toured all over the country with commercial country bands and stuff like that. But I made my way back to Florida in the uh, late 70s and met uh, Will McLean. And Will was a big inspiration for me. He encouraged me to write about Florida. He said, you know, you write all these love songs, cheating songs. You don't do much of that. Write about what you know, you know. And he, he used to tell me that it would take all of us doing all we can to tell Florida's story. There's so much history in the state of Florida. You say Florida, and they think about dismal world, you know, and the tragic kingdom, stuff like that. And the beaches, they don't understand that uh, more calves are birthed in Florida than anywhere else. The calves are birthed here, they ship the calves out west to the feed because it's cheaper to ship the calf one time than to ship food in here to fatten them up once a month or whatever. So it's just, uh, it's fascinating stuff, you know. And, and this area where we're at right now up here in North Florida, this is a big tobacco growing country. Cotton was big up here. And I guess, you know, back uh, before the war, they had plantations up here. Probably had slaves working on the plantations and things. So Florida, it's just fascinating to me, the history of it. All the way back through the Spanish and the British, and then the, the crackers came in, and here we are today. In the late 1970s, Frank Thomas joined other folk musicians such as Gamble Rogers, Paul Champion, and Bobby Droddy in their efforts to preserve Florida stories in song. Hero at Lusty in the Battle of Ocean Pond was General Alfred Culpit, he put Seymour on the road. The fight was short and bloody, a few hours maybe four. On February 20, back in 1864. Thomas gained a reputation for strongly encouraging other performers to write songs about Florida history and culture. Cousin Thelma Bolton did the same for him. Bolton was director of the Florida Folk Festival at the Stephen Foster Folk Culture Center in White Springs from 1954 to 1965 and continued performing as a storyteller at the annual event until 1986. I try to carry that tradition on, but now sometimes I will give assignments to somebody. Go write a song about this or about that. The main reason for that was cousin Thelma Bolton. She used to be the ran this folk festival so many years. She hemmed me up one time backstage, got to putting her finger in the. She was an old school teacher retired. She scared me good, but she would uh, was telling me about she was riding the bus one morning real early and they come up on this 
thing where they had a chain across the road with a red lantern hanging across, and they stopped the bus, and they got to sitting there listening, and they heard guns, and they said it was like a war going on. And she said, now they had that old Mar Barker, and her son Doc hemmed up in that house down there, and uh, they killed him right then. She said, now you go write a song about that, and you have that for me the next time I see you. I avoided the rest of the festival. But she would do that to a lot of people. She would assign songs. So I thought, well, you know, that's not a bad song I wrote. And if it worked for her, why couldn't it work, you know, for other people? So I started giving out some assignments, and that's how that all kind of happened. Thelma Bolton told Frank Thomas about the FBI attempt to capture the infamous Barker gang at their Florida hideout in Ocklawaha. The resulting shootout resulted in the deaths of family matriarch Ma Barker and her son Fred. It's pieces of Florida history like this that Thomas captures in song. Well, you can write a newspaper article or a magazine article or whatever, and people will read it, and they'll be putting it in the birdcage the next day or whatever, and they'll forget about it. A song seems to stay with people. It focuses on their mind, and they don't forget it. And I think that's why, it's, it's, especially in, in school, with the, the kids in school, they need to be teaching more Florida history through music in the schools, is my opinion. In addition to playing several performances at the Florida Folk Festival each year, Frank Thomas holds a workshop for up-and-coming artists on how to write Florida-specific songs. But we started doing a workshop down on the river, at that river gazebo, and it's about Florida. Everybody that comes through there that sings a song, the song has to be about Florida. The Florida people, the, the rivers, the, the wood, whatever, it's got to be related to Florida. A lot of people started writing songs so they could be on that workshop. And we had a radio show that ran, had a 12-year run that originated in Tampa but was syndicated all over. And that show, it was called Songs of Florida, and you had, that's what you had to have to qualify to be on the show. Well, a lot of people wanted to be on the radio show, and they started writing, so, so it sparked some interest in that. And uh, I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the fact that anywhere you go around this festival, you'll hear and see people singing songs about the history or love or something about the state of Florida or the Swanee River or Lake Okeechobee or wherever it might be. Florida folk musician Frank Thomas has passed away his legacy lives on in the songs he has written about Florida history and culture and in the work of other musicians who he has encouraged to do the same. Without arms and nearly starving, bloodhounds on their track. Facing Colts revolving rifles, the Everglades to their back. The Seminole would wander through this river of grass And elude their captors Till the very last For many years to come the bloody fighting would go on
Yes, descendants of the seven knows Walk the Okeechobee sand This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, and find out about our upcoming Florida Historical Society virtual annual meeting and symposium to be held October 9th through 12th. That's myfloridahistory.org. Who wants yesterday's papers? Who wants yesterday's gun? Who wants yesterday's papers? Nobody in the world. Unlike the Rolling Stones, we love yesterday's papers, and yesterday's girls for that matter, here at the Library of Florida History. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, newspapers can be considered primary resources for historians, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. In fact, in the foreword of historian Julian Pleasant's book on the history of newspapers in Florida called Orange Journalism, the historians Ray Arsenault and Gary Marmino argue that newspapers are, quote, the first drafts of history, unquote. And I think that is a very powerful descriptor of such a complex actor in history, the print media. Since Florida's early years as a territorial backwater, newspapers were the voice of the people. They not only tried to keep people informed about what was happening outside the state, but really shaped their understanding of contemporary activities. What newspapers decided to print and how that information was presented in print was extremely important. Now, there's little evidence of any newspapers printed in Florida prior to the 19th century, other than the short run of a a paper called the East Florida Gazette and another small press in Fernandina. But that didn't mean that events in Florida were not covered in other papers. In the archives, actually, we have various articles about Florida from newspapers printed in London, New York, Boston during the late 18th century. But after Florida became a U.S. territory in 1821, there were actually no fewer than 45 different newspapers published between 1821 and 1845. Towns and cities like St. Augustine, Pensacola, Tallahassee, Apalachicola, even Newport, and small towns like Quincy had their own newspapers. As one of Florida's fastest growing cities, though, Jacksonville had five different newspapers published between 1821 and 1845. Now, the newspaper industry at this time was cutthroat. Papers opened and closed regularly. They changed ownership often. But on the other hand, a successful paper could really make somebody very wealthy. In Jacksonville, there was a pro-Republican paper that opened in 1864 called the Florida Union. And it has a distinction today as being the longest-running newspaper in print in Florida. It changed hands several times up through the 1880s and was known by various names, including the Florida Times Union and Citizen. And then in 1903, the name was shortened to the Florida Times Union. For much of the 20th century, the paper was actually owned by both the Florida East Coast Railroad and the Atlantic Seaboard Airline, the two major railroads in Florida, which meant that they had the financial backing to endure financial hardships when a lot of newspapers went under. That also meant that, you know, coverage of things like train accidents was pushed to the back of the page. Again, it gets to that, the importance of editorship when we look at historic newspapers. So tell us about these huge bound volumes of the Jacksonville Times Union that are housed here at the Library of Florida History. 
Sure. So these are, as you said, bound. They're complete sets of the daily paper from January 1917 through December of 1918. So two full years of Jacksonville history and Northeast Florida history in these volumes. And I mean, the first thing that strikes you, obviously, is the size. They're just enormous. And most researchers nowadays would browse through these papers using either microfilm or search digitally using keywords. This is the old school way of doing research. You're literally reading the paper as a Jacksonvillian would have read it a century ago. When we have student groups that come into the archive, they love this aspect. You know, so few of them have actually, you know, nowadays sat down and read a hard copy newspaper. So this is really important for them. This particular set was donated to the Florida Historical Society directly from the Jacksonville Times Union because of its historic coverage of the First World War period. So it's been part of the library for 100 years. And it was actually bound by the Drew Press, a local press in Jacksonville. Now looking here, I've got opened up the Sunday edition from early 1918. And there's actually a section dedicated to the Florida Federation of Women's Clubs, which in 1918 and 1919 were instrumental in pushing for women's suffrage in the passage of the uh, 19th Amendment, which eventually happened in 1920. Here's a great section. This is one of my favorites on movie reviews from 1918. These are, of course, silent films. There's also some great articles in here on local theater performances. We've got classified ads. Here you could buy a, a three-bedroom bungalow in the West Springfield neighborhood for only $2,000 in 1918. They also had these colorized cartoons. And of course, you know, we're talking about 1917, 1918. So, so much of the front page was dedicated to the war effort, both in Europe and what was happening locally in uh, Northeast Florida and really throughout the state. This was also a transformative period for Northeast Florida for other reasons. You know, in 1918, the first cases of Spanish influenza began to appear in Jacksonville. That's covered here in the paper, although it's in a much more subdued way that was kind of pushed to some of the later pages. This was common across the country. Newspaper editors tried to downplay the pandemic in order to maintain public spirit for the war effort. That was really the most important thing that was happening in 1918. So you mentioned that newspapers are the first drafts of history. How are these historic newspapers used today? For most historians, you know, newspapers will find their way into their source material, whether they like it or not. You know, as I talked about earlier, the press and particularly print media at this time wielded a tremendous amount of power and controlled the messaging in Florida for 200 years. What you see in these early papers, especially newspapers covering smaller areas, like I mentioned, towns like Quincy, Apalachicola, are detailed descriptions of daily life for Floridians. It's important to mention that, you know, like many other facets of Florida society during this time period, not everyone was included in that narrative. The daily lives of African Americans and immigrant populations were not covered in these newspapers or stories, unless in, in some cases their lives somehow rubbed up against those of white Floridians. And even then, editors used very blunt terms and, and rarely utilized any journalistic integrity, if you will, when reporting on any of those kinds of situations. So, as a response to this and as a response to being shut out of so many aspects of society, black communities in Florida created their own newspapers, and Jacksonville was no different. One of the most influential African-American journalists in Duval County in the 19th century was a man named John Willis Menard. In 1885, Menard brought his paper, the Florida News, later known as the Southern Leader, from Key West, where he had been working, to Jacksonville, where he was from, expanded its staff, and really created a comprehensive, large-scale state newspaper for African Americans. It operated until 1888, and fortunately, the yellow fever epidemic forced its closure, and it never reopened. 
Other black papers printed in Jacksonville during this time period included the People's Journal, later known as the Florida Standard, just to name a few. So throughout the 20th century, they continue this process until the 1960s and 70s when they sort of folded into the contemporary Jacksonville Times Union. Now, the paper itself, the Jacksonville Times Union, as I said, is still in print today. It is the longest running active newspaper in Florida. Although, unfortunately, as of 2018, the actual printing, the printing of the paper, no longer takes place in the city, but the journalists are still headquartered right there in downtown. Interesting. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see the Jacksonville Times Union newspapers we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Although Tom Petty spent much of his career living in California, his roots are definitely right here in Florida. Holly Baker has more. Musician Tom Petty, a Gainesville native, once worked as a groundskeeper at the University of Florida as he tried to make it in music. After forming the Southern rock band Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers in 1976, he went on to great success, but he never forgot his Gainesville roots. Bob Keeling is an Emmy Award-winning journalist and an author of several books, including Elvis Ignited, The Rise of an Icon in Florida, and Calling Me Home, Graham Parsons and the Roots of Country Rock. As Bob Keeling explains, Tom Petty's dreams of becoming a musician started early and became even stronger after meeting Elvis Presley in Ocala, Florida when he was 10 years old. Back then he was known as Tommy Petty. His uncle Earl was a prop master on Elvis's film, Follow That Dream. And they actually got to go to the set in Ocala and shake hands with Elvis as he was filming the movie. That's where young Tommy Petty really has his desire stoked by meeting, you know, this iconic rock star. Really, it's a meeting of icons uh, in Ocala, Florida in the early 1960s. So that's where it all started in terms of his interest in music. When Tom Petty was growing up on Northeast Sixth Terrace in the 1960s and 1970s, Gainesville's music scene was thriving. Inspired by the Beatles and other rock groups of the time, garage bands popped up all over town. One of the interesting things is that Gainesville has, at last count, eight musicians who went on to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So this is an uncommonly musical place. And one of the reasons it is is because you not only have the Southerners, you know, the storytellers who grew up there, guys like Tom Petty, but you also have transplants like Bernie Ledden, who went on to co-found the Eagles. His dad was a professor. So yes, there was a thriving fraternity scene where these garage bands could play for really good money. So they would hone their craft, they would get better, they would become better musicians, but they'd also make good money. And once Tom Petty saw the Beatles, it wasn't long before he started his own band in the living room of his house. They were the sundowners, and away he went. In 1970, 19-year-old Tom Petty formed the band Mud Crutch with friends Tom Ledden, Jim Lenahan, Randall Marsh, and Mike Campbell. Petty and Tom Ledden were basically two of the principals 
in in this band called the epics and you know they were the great garage band of the one of the great ones in Gainesville and they could play the Beatles note for note but times were changing at the end of the 60s and the early 70s and they became the band Mudcrutch they'd seen Floridians like the Allman Brothers and Graham Parsons and then more recently Bernie Ledden go out west and have some success there so that's when Petty and Mike Campbell and those guys in Mudcrutch decided okay we're going we're gonna to test the waters out west. And uh, they didn't see a lot of success initially, but they were signed to Leon Russell's Shelter Records, and they, they gave it a shot. Things didn't work out too well. Some of them ended up going back to Gainesville, but Petty hung out there. Tom Petty's band Mudcrutch broke up in 1975. In 1976, Tom Petty formed Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers with Mike Campbell, Ron Blair, Stan Lynch, and Ben Montinch. Tom Petty went on to become one of the best-selling music artists of all time, releasing 13 studio albums with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, along with three solo albums. In the 1980s and 1990s, Tom Petty was also a member of the supergroup, The Traveling Wilburys, with George Harrison of The Beatles, along with Jeff Lynne, Bob Dylan, and Roy Orbison. You can sit around and wait for the phone to ring Waiting for someone to tell you everything Sit around and wonder what tomorrow will bring Maybe a diamond ring Can you imagine a kid from Florida not only meets Elvis, is so inspired by the Beatles on Ed Sullivan to become a musician himself, and then lo and behold, all those years later, he actually gets to be in a super group with a Beatle. That's pretty amazing, and that's why Tom Petty's story as a Florida music icon is so unique. Tom Petty died in 2017 at the age of 66. Since his death, numerous tributes have taken place, especially in Gainesville, Florida, his hometown. Tom Petty Weekend at Hartwood Soundstage has hosted musical performances in his honor. A park near his childhood home has been named Tom Petty Park. And in 2019, Matheson History Museum opened an exhibit titled Tom Petty's Gainesville, where dreams began. The University of Florida in Gainesville also began a tribute to Tom Petty. At the end of the third quarter at Gator football games, fans lock arms and sing, I won't back down. I think Tom Petty is just a very unique Florida music icon. There's just nobody like him. The things he was able to accomplish before his um, tragic and unexpected passing in 2017, he just did so much. And I think it also bears mentioning that towards the end of his life, when he decided he was going to go back to the future and put his old garage band Mud Crutch back together, so people like Tom Ledden could experience rock stardom and go on the big massive tour. That's just such an incredibly generous thing to do. And it's also risky. You know, imagine the Beatles going back and reforming the Quarrymen or something like that. It just doesn't happen. Everything Tom Petty did turned to gold. You know, every collective that he was in, the Heartbreakers, Mud Crutch, the Traveling Wilburys, they were all just enormously successful. And Petty's a big reason why. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker. 
public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society, and manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and find us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and healthy. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.